Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. I would like to begin this session by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Sydney Writers Festival 2022. My name is Fiona Murphy and I am delighted to welcome you all to this very special event, Paying Attention. I'm the author of The Shape of Sound, which is a memoir that explores my experiences with deafness, and I'm one of this year's guest curators, so it was my absolute pleasure to bring together these brilliant brains all on one panel. So we are living in an attention economy, but some of us may be paying a steeper price than others. Being disabled or chronically ill means navigating a world that's not designed for you and not always having the choice of what you want to pay attention to, but what you need to pay attention to. And what if we flipped the equation? And what if disabled and chronically ill people started charging for their expertise? Today, we will be exploring a series of fun, compelling, and frank talks from the following writers about sharing why society needs to start paying us, literally paying us, to be the experts. First up today will be a talk from Elle Gibbs. Elle Gibbs is a disabled person, an award-winning writer and disability advocate. Her writing on disability, the NDIS, and social issues has been published widely most recently in Mianjin, Crokey, Eureka Street, and Women's Health magazine. Elle contributed a chapter to Growing Up Disabled in Australia, and in 2020, won the Leslie Hall Award for Lifetime Achievement in the National Disability Leadership Awards. She lives and works on Wiradjuri land, and we will be playing a video of Elle's performance now. Greetings from us all here at Disability Incorporated, the new disability consulting firm to rival the so-called Big Four, like KPMG and Deloitte. I've started this new firm as it is obvious that the current consultants that governments are so fond of are simply not up to the job. Far too many of them don't know anything about disabled people and or disability issues or have any expertise about our lives. These consultants aren't disabled people and they don't employ us, so they get things very wrong, recommending all sorts of nonsense that disabled people then have to work out how to fix. Disability Incorporated has been started just in time. The last federal government was very fond of spending enormous amounts of money with consultants who had no idea what they were talking about. Between March, between 2018 and August 2022, just for an example, they gave Serco uh, $158 million to run the NDIS call centre. And anyone who's had the joy of ringing that call centre knows how little they know about disability or the NDIS or anything actually helpful for disabled people trying to access essential services. 
The NDIS has been spending more than $400 million a year on consultants, all so that disabled people can keep having to fight for what we need. You know, luxuries such as, you know, help to get out of bed, mobility aids, and support to go to school or to work. Consultants get money to do that work, make the mistakes about that work, and get more money to fix that work. These consultants talk about the NDIS as the dairy, somewhere to be milked. Some uh, treasures from McKinsey, non-disabled people of course, came up with an idea a few years back, years back to introduce so-called independent assessments that would have kicked disabled people off the NDIS and changed the scheme forever. This led to a profound breakdown in trust between the NDIS and disabled people, so of course there needed to be another expensive round of consultants to figure out how to fix that and to run consultations with disabled people to find out what had actually happened to break the trust. And in the end, disabled people were forced to campaign in the, in the federal election we've just had uh, to defend the NDIS. It should actually have been called cleaning up after the consultants. And all this has just happened just in the last few years. Obviously, it's now time for disabled people to fix things and to take charge. Disability Incorporated, the new firm, is taking a lead from these consultants. They charge over $5,000 a day, and we'll be charging at least that amount with an extra loading because we're actually disabled people. The experts that we have as disabled people is exactly what the NDIS now needs to fix the scheme and to stop hurting disabled people who rely on it. But we're not stopping with the NDIS, of course. Disability Incorporated will also be consultants who can fix education, transport, housing, discrimination, law, and much, much more. No longer will non-disabled consultants be being paid thousands of dollars a day will come to dis disability organisations and ask for their unpaid time and expertise about disability. Instead, we're getting rid of these non-disabled leeches, putting us front and centre. After all, nothing about us without us is more than a slogan on a T-shirt. Gone are the days when disabled people will settle for tiny amounts of government funding, which is expected to stretch further and further until disabled people break. No longer will we settle for getting peanuts while non-disabled people are getting the entire nut farm and factory. Now, in the era of Disability Incorporated, disabled people get the contracts and do a hell of a lot better job. Being disabled isn't nice to have when it comes to delivering expertise and services for disabled people. It's essential. Disabled people know what it is like to live in a world that isn't designed for us. We are expert problem solvers, expert innovators, because we have to be, and we're damn good at getting shit done. More than this, we believe that non-disabled people should be ineligible for all government contracts that are about disabled people. They're simply not up for the job. Instead, Pay disabled people what we are worth for our time, our expertise, and our knowledge. So that'll be $5,000 a day, thanks.
and I'll send you the invoice right after this. Put your hands together for the very convincing L Gibbs. And I don't know if anyone else wants to get in on that, but Disability Incorporated sounds fantastic. Oh my goodness. Um, up next is me and my pitch for why we should get paid the big bucks as disabled and chronically ill people. And do, I do apologise for the kind of the sales pitch. Elle did it in such a great way. I'm just going to do it in a very cheesy, you've got extra steak knives way. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to live for longer? Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, do you want to live for longer? Do you want to wake up feeling refreshed? Anyone? Do you want to float through your days with an unclenched jaw? Do you want to harness the kind of energy and sustained focus that once felt effortless? Anyone? The world has a noise problem, and deaf people are the only ones who can solve it. I'm not just talking about flight paths and freeway traffic. No, 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 no. The problem is much more insidious and widespread than that. You see, regardless of the volume, even relatively mild and soft ambient noises can have an impact on your health. Our bodies recoil, react, clench, stir, fret, and even become depressed by unwanted noise. Hire deaf people to fix the problem, not because we're experienced in silence, but we're experts in sound. Deaf people know that noise is more than just unwanted sounds. There can be countless factors that tip a person from a state of ambivalence to absolute irritation. That tipping point of when sounds shift from being harmless to harmful. But lucky for everyone, deaf people have created an entire branch of architecture geared towards solving the problem. Let me introduce you to deaf space design. Formally codified in 2005 at Gallaudet University in Washington, DC, Deaf space design encompasses over 150 architectural patterns that create spaces that feel welcoming, safe, and improve the ease of communication for everyone, regardless of if you're deaf or not. Deaf space design is more than just acoustics. It's about how you feel and move when, within an environment. The patterns explore concepts of proximity, visually quiet backgrounds, the flow of communication, one's sensory reach, refraction, reflection, static, moving shadows. How can all of this help turn down the noise? Well, let me just flex some deaf experience because <laughs> uh, I'm an expert. For instance, in deaf space design, there's a beautiful pattern named layers of light and it recommends that diffuse light, like that of, quote, a flat, cloudy sky is ideal for seeing sign language. On a practical level, this can be achieved by installing windows and skylights positioned at a variety of light intensities. To wash building surfaces with light 
resulting in a calm, glowing space. Simply put, good lighting often prompts ease of conversation. And who doesn't want to hang out in a space that we can express ourselves that is calm and glowing? Deaf space design considers all your sensory needs. How we have traditionally designed our buildings demand us to stay on guard and even alert. For example, there's a pattern called soft intersections, which advises of the hazards of sharp corners. By extending a person's line of sight via curving walls and opaque glass incorporated into corners, you too can stride forth confident you're not going to collide with another person just around the corner. <laughs> Deaf people are experts in sound. Hire us to solve your no noise problem. Your life depends on it. <laughs> Thank you. Next up, we have Hannah Divney. Yep. Good job. Gold star. I was saying to Hannah, I get really nervous pronouncing things ahead of time. Uh, Hannah is a leading disability advocate and writer based in Sydney. Her greatest achievements, of which there are many, is as a disability advocate includes her role of the creator of the wildly successful change.org petition that calls on Disney Studios to create a disabled Disney princess. And in her role as co-founder of the charity event Crazy Cozy Climb, which sees young people with disabilities and their families conquer Mount Kosciuszko. She's also the editor-in-chief of the global publication platform Missing Perspectives, a platform dedicated to addressing the marginalisation and underrepresentation of women and girls in news, media, democracy and decision-making around the world. Hannah was the finalist in Australian Women's Weekly Women of the Future Awards in 2021 and the nominee in the 2022 Young Australian of the Year. Put your hands together for Hannah. Hi, guys. I, I'm Hannah. Um, right now, looking out at all of you, I am experiencing significant flashbacks to public speaking competitions in, in high school, and I'm just trying to remind myself that, like, I'm not being assessed on this. No one's going to tell me that, like, I, I've won or lost the competition at the end of this, so bear with me, but I promise I'll breathe and we'll see how we go. So I can't quite believe I'm here on the Sydney Writers Festival stage, being considered not only a writer, but an expert, no less, as though I'm going to have some important words of like really wise wisdom to impart to you in the five minutes that I have, um, when in truth, I really just think of myself as a girl who happened to be born three months too early and has CP to show for it, who was once told she would never talk and now never shuts up, <laughs> as my parents can attest, um, and also the girl who from the age of four has known that words were her superpower. Now, that particular discovery would end up being super important for the little girl that I once was as I learned to navigate the world and the fact that for me, in a body like this one, it's a little bit more complicated, a little bit more prickly, a little bit more, uh, how, how would I say, like, 
underdeveloped or sometimes not even thought of at all. There's a reason that my mum used to tell me that the pen was mightier than the sword, because she knew that for me, my pen would need to be mightier than Excalibur. That way, people would actually pay attention to my brain instead of all this other stuff. Um, so, I have to be honest, when I was pitched the idea of this event, I laughed. Not just out of shock and wonder at being considered high profile enough to be sitting here in front of you, but because I couldn't quite believe that Sydney Writers Festival was allowing an event like this to happen. It blew my mind that Sydney Writers Festival thought it was viable and that we'd sell enough tickets, that like, people would come and see disabled people talk about their experiences and the art and the things that they make out of their lives as disabled people, because I've got to tell you, it, ha it hasn't always been like that. Spoiler alert. Um, times have changed a lot. So just over 20 years ago, when I was born, a friend of my uncle's very genuinely asked him if my parents were considering placing me in an institution to live out my days, so devoid of possibility were... Well, so devoid of colour and possibility were the lives of disabled people, at least by society's standards. These days, disabled narratives are split down the middle. Behind door number one, you have the tragic, crying disabled person who's staring out the window, wishing they were a part of the world. We've all seen the movies, right? And behind door number two, way at the other end of the spectrum, you have Paralympic glory. But what the hell happens if you sit somewhere in the middle? Well, that's where I come in, because I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not likely to be representing Australia at the Paralympics anytime soon. Um, so, I guess when I think about my expertise, as it were, and I think about what you guys expect me to talk about, you're probably expecting me to talk about accessibility, right? You want me to tell you that for every public staircase that exists in the world, there has to be a ramp and a lift to follow, and that maybe, just maybe, a place can't really be considered accessible, even if it only has one or two tiny steps. It's still a step, guys. It's still a step. Or that maybe, just maybe, disabled toilets shouldn't be used as storerooms, or they should be designed well enough so that you can actually close the door and someone doesn't have to stand guard in the hallway, which is an experience I had only last week. But I've got to be honest, I think a lot about accessibility, obviously. It never leaves my brain. Often I joke that one of my long-term, far-away-in-the-future plans is running mobility aid classes for my friends and family as they age, teaching them how to use wheelchairs and walkers that I already have decades of experience using, even though I'm only in my early 20s. Just a quick side note, do you know how strange it is to be essentially, in some ways, at the same spot as your grandparents some 70 years too early? It really messes up your brain. Um, but beyond that, I think about taking accessibility consultancy to the entertainment industry, an industry that some might say Disabled people are latecomers, too. <laughs> um, and I think, basically, disabled people have to be given space to make bold entrances into books, 
television, movies and films, as creators, as fans, and as professionals. But beyond the fact that I could run an accessibility consultancy business and write a thesis on why representation is so important, especially when it's done by disabled people for disabled people, there are a few other areas of expertise I have that I wanted to share with you. One of them is that I'm an expert at making people uncomfortable. <laughs> it's probably because I don't fit in the too narrow box that they've expected and accepted that I should probably live in. Generally, if somebody gives me a box, I tend to, I don't know, pretend I don't see it or something, just like tunnel vision to where I'm going. One of my favorite challenges in life is figuring out how to get into a place or a party that I'm not invited to. <laughs> not, not literally parties, but you know, how many disabled people do you see out in the world doing things? I've had the experience where I've been at a train station before and like, I'll be catching the train to uni and people will say, oh my God, there's so many of you out today. And it's like, yeah, sorry, we didn't coordinate between all disabled people everywhere that like only four of us would come out on Monday, three of us on Tuesday, two of us on Wednesday. Like, we are actually allowed to have full lives. It's shocking, I know, but surprise. Um, so the other thing I wanted to tell you about is that basically I told you before that words are my superpower. Well, I'm lucky enough to be in the process of writing my first book, which is... <laughs> Thanks, guys. I hope that means you'll all, you'll all buy a copy one day, eventually, when it's out. My, my agent is sitting there in the front row laughing at me going, ha ha, free promo. <laughs> um, but basically, um, it will be a collection of personal essays about all of this stuff, ab about pop culture, about what it's like to grow up when the world feels like it's collapsing in the middle of so many crises. Because, you know, it's a little bit of an interesting time that we're living in right now. Although, between last night and today, that time might have got a little bit better. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but, I don't know, maybe I'll see you all here next year to come and talk about it. Um, basically, I'm a couple of weeks away from taking the first extract of that book to a publisher's auction, which is terrifying. But basically, it's where people in the know will decide if the straw I spin is good enough to be turned into gold and given a place on your bookshelves. Now, before I, before I finish up, there is one more thing that I think I have an area of expertise in that I wanted to share with you. And that is that I see people. I've spent my life in some sort of weird conundrum where I am simultaneously looked through and stared at constantly. That's meant I'm pretty damn good at observing people and at seeing people for all of who they are. I think it's really important that we try and see people, I mean, exactly for who they are. And I know that that can be difficult, but I'm guessing that all of you are here because A, you somewhat have that power already, or B, you, you want to learn how 
And uh, the first step might sound kind of obvious, guys, but you just need to open your eyes. Look at me. Think about what happened when you walked in this room and first saw me on this stage. Has what you thought of me changed since I started talking to you? Sometimes it does. For the people who know me, they'll be like, no, Hannah, you're still the same annoying person you were five minutes ago. <laughs> But, um, basically, I think what, what we need you to do, all of us here, is listen to us as experts. Yeah, I can't speak today. This is not good. This was my one job, <laughs> speaking. I promise I actually can coherently speak most of the time. I think what I'm trying to say, if I can ever get the words out, is that the four of us, especially, want you to see us as experts, we want you to listen to us, and then we want you to take everything you learned here today, go home to the people you know who maybe don't see, and uh, tell them where to find us. Thank you. Yeah! Put your hands together. I love so much about that, but also that you're like, I'm an expert in making people feel uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. I love that so much. That's brilliant. Now we have Michelle Law, who is a writer of print, film and television and theatre. She wrote the highly acclaimed play Single Asian Female and her latest play, Top Coat, will be staged at the Sydney Theatre Company this year. Michelle co-created, co-wrote and starred in the award-winning series Homecoming Queens, the first web-based series commissioned by SBS. She's also worked on shows for networks such as Netflix US, ABC, SBS, Fox, Network 10 and 9, and her first book, Asian Girls Going Places, Are Going Places, was published by Hardy Grant in 2022. Put your hands together for Michelle. It's a hell of an intro. <laughs> I feel like I should have come up with a company name. I'll, I'll, call, I'll come up with it okay. at the end of this. Okay. <laughs> There's been a lot of body positivity campaigns in the Australian beauty industry in the last several decades that have led to us seeing models of different sizes, shapes, races, and abilities being platformed. But how much has really changed? I mean, how far have we actually strayed from a beauty ideal? And how long will it take for us to unlearn the harmful messages we've been taught about what it means to be a beautiful person in this country? The beauty industry has been so successful at perpetuating this ceaseless cycle of routines and treatments and rituals that besides addressing brief capitalist-driven notions of self-care are ultimately pointless. <laughs> We're told that we need to have more for our bodies and do more to our bodies to not only be beautiful, but to simply pass as acceptable. I mean, there's still only a handful of cosmetics companies that manufactures darker shades of foundation and concealer. Just take a walk around Mecca, Sephora, or Priceline, and you'll generally see the same models, primarily fair, with straight teeth, defined bone structure, clear skin, and big eyes and all of them hairy beyond belief. <laughs> I'm talking about head hair that's been straightened, curled, waved, and colored. 
I'm talking about eyebrows that have been pruned, plucked, and shaped to, to precision. I'm talking about eyelashes that have been clamped and coated in mascara. I'm talking about beards and moustaches that have been trimmed and embellished. Being beautiful takes so much hair. <laughs> so what's an antidote to the beauty myth? What's a way to escape that trap? Why, losing all of your body hair with absolutely no warning, of course. <laughs> Developing alopecia areata and autoimmune disease will ironically cure what ails you. Breaking free from the beauty industry when you're bald is easy because suddenly the beauty industry has nothing to offer you. Nothing to tempt you back. Forget expensive trips to the hairdresser, abandon all eyebrow gels and tweezers, and drop mascara from your shopping list because your eyelids are too swollen from a bombardment of misdirected T-cells. Bald people should be the ones running the beauty industry because you can trust us. We can't lie, even when we're wearing disguises. I mean, all it takes is a strong gust of wind to knock a wig or a toupee clean off. The following would be our first decrees. Hair salons can stay because hair and wig styling can be a form of visual art. Makeup can stay too, but only for fun and dress-ups. Even beauty counters at Meyer and David Jones can stay as long as all the advertisements have been shot by regular people who aren't great at using camera phones. <laughs> and at one point during everyone's schooling, their heads should be shaved unexpectedly as part of their formative education. <laughs> If bold people ran the beauty industry, we'd let you decide how you want to look. We'd be encouraging you to find beauty in all kinds of places that aren't in a mirror like the distinct way your laugh sounds, or the way you make someone feel about themselves, or the meal you cook, you cook that brings someone comfort, or the way everyone in your family has the same nose. Bald people would revolutionize the way you see beauty in yourself and other people, because we've had to do the hard work finding different kinds of beauty within ourselves. Just let us take charge and you'll think you're enough, and you're hot, just as you are. Thank you. Woo! I am completely convinced and sold Thank yet you. again. I love this. <laughs> and finally, for uh, the presentation part of this event is Fiona Wright. She is a writer, editor, and critic from Sydney, hometown. Her book of essays. <laughs> Small. No, 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 no. She's done too much. Her book of essays, Small Acts of Disappearance, won the 2016 Kibble Award and the Queensland Literary Award for Nonfiction. And her new collection, The World Was Whole, was long listed for the 2019 Stella Prize. Her poetry collections include Knuckled and Domestic Interior. Put your hands together for Fiona Wright. So... We were told this was like a Shark Tank style presentation and I've never seen Shark Tank because I don't own a TV because TVs are a sensory nightmare um, and also they're just awful. <laughs> I also had a much angrier and more despairing version of this. When I get to the end of this, be like, really, you had angrier? Um, but I, I kind of, I woke up this morning um, feeling really weird. It was like this weird feeling kind of sitting 
somewhere between my stomach and my chest and it sort of didn't really go anywhere. And I spent the best part of the day kind of going like, what, what are you? What's going, am I hungry? Am I, am I sick? Did I drink too much last night? Probably. Um, and then I went, oh, shit. I think that's hope. <laughs> Fuck. Like, um, <laughs> it's probably misplaced. <laughs> I'm absolutely aware that it's probably misplaced, but, you know, I'm having a moment. No, they're not clapping for you. <laughs> she always thinks the applause is for her, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Um, so I had to change this a little bit. Um, but I'm still going to start with the obvious point. There was an obvious point that, I'm, that I want to make right at the beginning. Um, I can't help that, which is to say that if we just funded the arts properly, um, we wouldn't, you could just pay us as being writers and that'd be fine. Um, we wouldn't have to pitch this. Um, <laughs> now, you know, I wrote that before the election, but it's probably evergreen. We might get a ministry back though. Who knows? And I kind of had to that, put that point out there first. I can't help doing that sort of thing because one of my great areas of expertise is just walking into a room and going, oh, look, an elephant, how cool, uh, before I've got a chance to notice that nobody else is, well, we're studiously avoiding said elephant um, and just kind of shrinks back into the corner. I used to joke about that all the time and I'd say, if I could monetize that somehow, well, the avocado toast would be on me. Um, or I'd say something like, if, if any of you ever needs a wing woman, um, I'm your girl. I'm not talking about the kind of wing womaning where you do that sort of, I'm going to cast you in a flattering light by doing that kind of judge me by the company I keep kind of thing. Um, it's more that with me standing by your side, with my very weird, super awkward, saying all of the wrong things at the wrong time, but with the very best of intentions, mega vibe, um, and I'm a redhead for shit's sake, um, you're going to look like charisma incarnate, incarnate and it's elegant as a swan. Comparison's great like that. And I joke, it's like being that one person at the wedding who gets so absolutely, ridiculously sloppily white girl drunk that everybody else can get away with just being very, very drunk. Which is not to say that I will also happily feel that role for you. Love it. But I've, I've been making, I've been trying to make these sorts of jokes much less these days, and I'm reviving them only because it still makes me uncomfortable to risk framing disability instead as a special ability or a super ability or any of those gross things that people say, which I know is more meaning and I know it's not what we're doing here. We're talking about the things that we are better at uh, and things we are better suited to because we have had to be and because we have learned to be. Um, I know too that that kind of framing sure is shit. Oh, am I not, I'm being very sweary. I didn't mean that. That was not supposed to happen. I took all of the swears out. Um, <laughs> it's an improvement on the focus on our deficits and everything that's inappropriate, restricted, abnormal, poorly integrated, insistent, excessive, rigid, indifferent, and impaired about us, as the jokes above do. Um, obviously. And I know it's not entirely baseless or untrue in the kind of stretchiest version of those words, because I keep thinking about things like um, my diagnostic assessment, when we talked a great deal about the way I notice and remember details um, or connect disparate ideas in my mind without really trying. Well, no, it's trying. Um, or the way I love words so much and their precise textures and, and their very interesting histories. Or the way I can lose myself in a research rabbit hole for a full day and pop back out at the end with a handful of interesting factoids for anyone who cares to listen and everybody who doesn't. 
All of these things are really, really helpful for a writer, obviously. Turns out they're also super autistic. Um, but what they're not is special abilities or extra abilities. I work as hard as any other person, and I never want to discredit that. I work as hard as any other person, except for when it comes to other people. And there I work much, much harder, all of the time. I'm constantly working harder, I'm exhaustingly working harder, and the kicker of it is that when I'm doing it well, nobody notices, which is very much the point. And that's the expertise that I'm spruiking here. Um, like many autistic people, and like most autistic women, I've spent my entire life watching and listening, seeing people, um, and in turn, adapting, second-guessing myself, suppressing bits of myself, carefully phrasing what I want to say, then recalibrating it, and continually reminding myself, or at least trying to, what I should be leaving unsaid and what I should be doing differently, which doesn't always go all that well. <laughs> and yes, like, don't get me wrong, I know everybody does this to some degree. Of course we do, otherwise none of us would have bothered to put on pants before we walked out the door, and thank you for that, by the way, from this angle it would have been very bad. <laughs> but I'm going to hazard a guess that the neurotypical do not do it to this degree and they do not do it with this frequency. When I say constantly, of course I mean it literally, I'm autistic. But we're taught to think about accessibility and accommodation of those reasonable adjustments and those adaptations as things that are given to us, the given to disabled people by wider society. Um, and that the effort of this comes from everybody, comes from your side and not from ours. That adjustments are things that the world does kindly to help us get by a little more easily. When I spend and have spent so much of my life finding all the little things I can do uh, to make sure you're not uncomfortable and you're not confronted, and you don't have to try and behave differently and like hide your face when I say the dumb thing. It's for you that I'm always trying not to say and do the wrong thing. And it's because of you that I tried myself for mentioning those elephants. When like, guys, it's an elephant and you're missing it. But sometimes I think that, that what this really all comes down to is empathy. Um, just empathy, I wrote, but it's a dumb thing, right? Um, but this expertise is in always considering and always looking for exactly what it is that another person might be thinking and feeling, and what it is that might make them comfortable, what they might need. But of course, medicine's going to tell you that autistic people don't have the capacity for empathy. Autistic people are going to tell you that um, we, you know, we do, and a lot of people term this, um, term this the problem of double empathy. It's, a, it's kind of gaining more and more um, currency as a phrase within the autistic community. Um, but I think, I, I sort of think more like directional um, or bi-directional or reciprocal empathy might be a better fit. Because the idea is that our empathy just doesn't look like neurotypical empathy. And when neurotypical empathy is faced with this, it hasn't been able to extend itself far enough to recognise ours as existing at all. And so we've been doing all of this adapting, all of the time. And if it's my expertise you're looking for, well, I guess what I'm asking you to do is recognise it. <laughs> and that's the not cranky version. I feel like my brain has expanded in the last 40 minutes from the idea of disabled people being given positions of power with the 
NDIS. Imagine that being us being in decision-making positions and with government. With the people you're supposed to serve. Amazing, as well as the idea of everything that you said, Hannah, about having space at the Sydney Writers Festival and the first thought that came into your mind of being like, holy shit, we're allowed to do this? Incredible. And Michelle, about the beauty industry needing to completely change, but also still embrace makeup for fun. So not ripping it down, but recreating the whole thing. And exactly everything that you've said, Fiona, about empathy and the misconceptions that exist. Each of you are absolutely killing it in your fields of choice or multiple fields. Hannah, you had this idea for the crazy cosy climb and mm -hmm. it's raised well over $1.9 million and your petition... That's so weird. Give her a big round of applause. That's so weird. Like, I actually didn't know it had raised that much money until you just said that then, so my brain is like just buffering a little, <laughs> trying to like comprehend that amount of, I guess, impact. Huge amount of money. And your petition, when I last looked, for Create a Disney Princess with Disabilities has just over 60,000 signatures. Again, yeah, incredible. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Michelle, your play, Single Asian Female, performed to sell-out audiences in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. Your writing has appeared in well over a dozen anthologies as well as magazines and journals, killing it. Fiona, your poetry and nonfiction has won countless awards as well as been long and shortlisted for so many prizes. I'm going to put the, a few questions to the three of you. When is attention beneficial? When is it taxing? And have audiences been paying attention to what you hoped they would pay attention to? I might start with you, Hannah. Of course you're going to. <laughs> <laughs> Who else would you start with? De definitely the person whose brain is going, how do I answer that question? Um, but I think for me, um, the most valuable forms of attention are when it sounds strange, but I get to control the attention because there's a lot of taxing attention that comes to me that I don't get to control. So pretty much every time I'm out and about, someone will stare at me. I've been on the planet for nearly 23 years and it's still happening. I'm like, what, have you never seen a disabled person before? Like, let's go guys, this isn't the zoo. Keep keep it moving. Uh, but I think that sort of stuff is, is taxing and also the kind of under expectation of what I'm capable of. Like people will assume that I'm not kind of out there doing as much as I am or that I have the same sort of ambitions, dreams, wants, desires, all of those things. Um, in terms of like all of the advocacy stuff that I'm doing, that attention has been really helpful. And for that, I have to thank like social media. I know that there are so many ways in which social media can be awful and evil and a horrible cesspit of doom. <laughs> but um, there are multiple ways, at least for me, in which it can be really, really um, empowering, really important, and where I can get the attention of people who 
probably wouldn't give me a second glance if I walked past them. I think in terms of people paying attention, we're getting a lot better at listening to disabled people. I mean, the fact that this event exists is proof of that because, let's face it, even five years ago, we probably all wouldn't have been on this stage. Um, and I think there are a number of people who we can thank for that particular um, kind of increased visibility. But I think what people have to start paying attention to now is the idea that disabled people are allowed to be ordinary. Mm. Which sounds really strange, but like, it shouldn't be that a disabled person can only be recognized if they're a Paralympian, or if they're a public figure, or if they're a, I don't know, actress in a TV show. Um, but I think we've got, that has to come down to people being able to see disabled people doing ordinary things. So we need disabled teachers, disabled florists, disabled doctors. Like, for me, growing up as a little kid, I only ever saw disabled adults in therapy settings. So much so that I actually thought something happened to you in between childhood and adulthood because I couldn't see anyone who looked like me living the life I wanted to. Um, and I think what we need to do is get to the point where if a disabled person says, hey, I want to do this, the first reaction is, well, of course you can do that, not how on earth are you going to do that? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I would say, I guess, in terms of attention. Oh, God, I love that. Put your hands together for that. Celebrating the ordinary. Mm. Um, and Michelle. Sorry, Fee, what were the three elements of the question? There were so many benefits. elements. <laughs> so... <laughs> Incredible. I, I, I might rephrase that. <laughs> um, so across your in illustrious career, when has the attention been ben beneficial? When has it been taxing? And mm. have audiences paid attention to the things you hoped they would pay attention to? Um, I think, first of all, the beneficial parts of having chronic illness is what we've spoken about a lot on this panel, which is that you become very good at reading other people and reading their discomfort and having a really great sense of empathy inherently because it's sort of, you get very used to making other people comfortable <laughs> um, by yeah. your appearance or um, how you are in the world. Um, so I think as an artist, that is really beneficial because you're able to delve into like human psyche quite naturally because you're like, well, what would this character be feeling at this time? Um, I think the taxing parts of it are the everyday. Um, and I guess from my perspective, you know, I made Homecoming Queens and foregrounded chronic illness and... Um, illnesses like alopecia because I was tired of having to frequently like for lack of a better term come out <laughs> as like being a bald person and um, I wanted to give it that platform because just everyday stuff like you know ducking out to get some groceries or like going to the pool it's something that's so banal but you have to think about every single step along the way and whether or not you have to like show yourself to a neighbour who only knows you as wearing a wig and then they're like, is there another person living in your apartment? <laughs> like, just those little things that are really tiresome. Um, and 
In terms of audiences, um, I think people are getting better. I think representation of marginalised people across the board is slowly um, improving. Um, but that's something that I'm really passionate about, you know, getting Australian screens and stages to a point where there is a great sense of equity um, and representation um, and stories are being told from people by people from those communities. So I think I am hopeful, especially after the last 24 hours. And <laughs> across your career, has the attention been beneficial, taxing, and has it been what you hoped? What I hoped, I, I had no idea what I was doing, so I didn't have any kind of hopes or expectations at all. I was just like, ah! Um, that's the technical term for it, by the way. <laughs> um, I sort of think, I think the attention, so one of the things that's been really interesting for me is that the attention, um, like the audiences of my work, I think have been wonderful and very responsive and, you know, almost, you know, with, with only a few exceptions, <laughs> um, understand what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to say and, um, and, and have responded to that um, in ways that I, I sort of, I, you know, I honestly, genuinely didn't know what I was doing. I, I just had this sense that um, the information that I had gathered from popular, popular culture wasn't right and because it wasn't right, I'd been able to misrecognise myself for such a long time. Um, and wanted to kind of go like, actually, it's not like that. It's a bit more like this. So just FYI, if anyone out you out there is like little Fiona, might want to like, you know, do that sort of a thing. Um, and that's that's and that's always been really rewarding and and very um, heartening and just un, an unbelievable treat. You know, it's it's beyond anything I could I could have imagined had I allowed myself to. Um, the flip side is that I got used to being treated like a human, <laughs> which I say flippantly, but um, it, was, it was only shortly after, um, it was sort of in between my two books that I started working with the assistance dog here, um, and, and thereby you render yourself visibly disabled, sort of, um, because people are always like, oh, is she in training? Or... or um, and, you know, and then I say, no, no, she's fully trained. It's like, oh, um, who's she trained for? And then I'm like, yeah, me. <laughs> and they go, oh. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, why? And then I would just say, you know, my disability. And, you know, because <laughs> it's fun to fuck with them. Um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know what you're trying to ask, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you, that's, that's when the very different reactions that you get when you have marked yourself as other rather than just like feeling like you're different and, and trying to like keep a, keep a tamp on that um, was really startling to me the, and the, the biggest one of those is um, the, there's if you, if you the moment you use the word disabled in a request <laughs> about accessibility suddenly they start treating you like you're an idiot because you must well you know start treating you like, like you don't um, like you're not a competent adult and, and can't possibly be um, asking for something that's actually quite reasonable, but you must be, you know, um, talking some sort of 
rubbish. Um, and it, it flips like that and you cannot get it back. Um, and suddenly the very reasonable thing that you're asking for is the request of, you know, the mad woman in the attic um, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that has been really startling and interesting to learn. And I don't really know what we do about that. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in there that, that sort of this is stuff that I used to do and, and try not to do anymore, which is always a process and you always mess it up and have to, have to kind of keep negotiating that. But um, one, the, a big surprise for me was when you, uh, um, you know, a lot of, there's a, there's a huge gap um, in what we know about autism um, in, in men and in, and in women, though it, and also that it makes no sense to talk about gender in those terms with this condition because so many autistic people are non-binary because they go, that system's dumb, guys. It's a dumb system. Seriously, we're good at that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the average age of diagnosis for a woman is 36. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for a man or boy um, is like six. Um, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for a non-binary person, we just don't know because there's no data. Um, so... You know, so I, I, and I was bang on 36 um, when, I, when I found out about this recently and had kind of been thinking about things very differently <laughs> until then. And the, what that gives, what that gave me um, was a framework, because, you know, diagnosis is all made up and it's all bullshit, yes, but it gave me a framework to reconsider so much of what had happened to me across my life and so much of who I was in a way that took all of the blame away, which should never have been there in the first place by the way, but, you know, the world is the world. Um, and I was like, oh, oh, I can't do these things because of my brain, not because of some failing in me. And, it, and that's, that's a really wonderful thing um, that kind of lets you do the world completely differently. Um, so that was a nice surprise. Good surprises. <laughs> oh, hang on, I can't need to pass it on. Everyone else has... You're just too generous. <laughs> yeah. Any other surprises, Hannah or Michelle? <sighs> Goodness gracious, what's a good surprise... Um, it's probably been a good surprise, like, across the pandemic, um, using Zoom, mm. people can only see my head and shoulders, which means for the first time in my entire life, nobody has to know I'm in a wheelchair if they don't, if I, if I don't want them to, which means that my personality, my brain, my sense of humour, or lack thereof, sometimes, um, is what's making those first impressions, which hasn't happened since I was a, a tiny little kid who had to kind of tell people, oh yeah, no, I'm not just sitting down because I'm tired, I'm sitting down because if I tried to stand up, I would beat the record for the world's fastest face plant. Um, <laughs> but, but I think for me, having to figure out when to disclose my disability, or sometimes in some cases, deciding not to at all, was a really interesting experiment for me. Um, and also something that has been a nice surprise is recently I've come into the company of some people who don't make my disability a big deal, which is very refreshing indeed. Um, and they see me as a full and whole person, which doesn't happen all that often, unfortunately. There's still a number of people that I meet with where you can literally see their brain like have to recalibrate for a minute when they take in the wheelchair and they're like, uh, oh, right, okay. 
most of them are pretty good at hiding it, but you learn to catch the signals of a human brain buffering um, when you've had so many years' experience. But I think, yeah, those would be my good surprises, is that sometimes there are people who I don't actually have to work as hard mm. with. Amazing. And not to put you on the spot, Michelle, <laughs> um, I think a good surprise was meeting other people who are chronically ill in the arts. Because um, you could probably count them on, like, one hand, right? <laughs> um, so people who have had similar life experiences to you, because a lot of the time when you have a health condition, people tend to lump you all into this monolithic category that you all, like, know each other and you're into the same things or you are. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you're not interested in the arts or, like, that's just your identity, um, so I think that's been refreshing for me. Yeah, and that's been really nice because a lot of the time I'll get people reach out to me who are in very different sectors, sort of just wanting to be like best mates. And I'm like, oh, but we have nothing in common besides the fact that we both don't have hair. <laughs> so not quite sure what you're looking for, but then I'll meet, you know, other people who are like photographers and writers and stuff like that. So that's really cool. Oh, amazing. And that is all we have time for today. Put your hands together for this incredible panel. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.